me. Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 6th of March. We welcome Judy Cook, one of our BMS partners who works in Chiang Mai in Thailand where she founded and runs a home for children with disabilities in today's on-site service. But in today's podcast we'll be continuing to think about God's commandments with particular reference to the commandments to obey the authorities and also to love. We've just heard Edwin Starr sing, War, what's it good for? Absolutely nothing. Which seems to fit the bill for our present times. At the end of the service, we'll hear Peter, Paul and Mary sing Pete Seeger's song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? A few notices. Our church magazine for March is now available as hard copy or online. Our Lent groups continue at 2pm on Tuesday this week, on-site, and then on Thursday evening at 7.30 on Zoom. 
you can find details in today's email or if you're receiving a CD, look out for that flyer that you received last week in your envelopes. Details are also on the church website. Our next baptismal class will be starting soon. If you're interested in exploring baptism with no strings attached, then do please speak to me. And then finally, Who Let the Dads Out? Our group for dads, granddads, uncles and their preschool children meets again next Saturday from 10 till 11.30. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 119. Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the paths of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness.
The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us lay aside works of darkness and put on the armour of light. Now is the moment to awake from sleep and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we gather in his name, may the Lord be with us. O God of life and love, as we join together to praise you, turn our hearts to your ways. As we turn away from selfish gain and disgrace, turn our hearts to your ways. As we delight in your holy word, turn our hearts to your ways. As we seek to obey your commandments, turn our hearts to your ways. Affirm your promises to us, and in your righteousness give us life. Amen. A reading from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 13, beginning at the first verse. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honour you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good, but if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honour to those who are in authority. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbour, you will fulfil the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfils the requirements of God's law. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armour of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarrelling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. In today's podcast, we're looking at a section of the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. The Roman Christians were people that, as far as we know, Paul had not met, as we believe that his only visit to Rome was the journey he took in chains to testify before the emperor. This letter is perhaps the single most important piece of theological writing in the New Testament. While the four gospel accounts give us the words and life of Jesus, this letter to the Romans gives us Paul's argument for why who Jesus was and what he did 
was so important. The first eight chapters of this letter contain the essence of Paul's argument that Jews and Gentiles are equally in need of the redemption that comes through the cross of Christ. This was one of the battlegrounds over which the first Christians fought. The important question was whether or not the first Gentile Christian converts needed to live as Jews when they became Christians. Paul's argument was that they didn't, and to make them do so was to diminish what Christ had done. It placed obedience to the law of Moses on a par with faith in the saving work of Christ. Paul wrote in a number of places in the New Testament that there was no equivalence between the law of Moses and the cross of Christ, and to say that the law should be obeyed by Gentiles was an affront to what God had done. Well, that's perhaps the most important argument in the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. However, while the heat has gone out of the letter by the time we get to chapter 13, there is still a considerable amount of important teaching that we should not overlook. And in this particular passage that we're looking at, we have Paul's teaching regarding love. Now, you might think that Paul isn't best known for teaching about love. But let's not forget that Paul wrote possibly the most quoted piece of writing about love in all of literature, 1 Corinthians 13. But Paul can come across as rather an austere figure who likes telling people how they should live their lives and who gets cross about a lot of different things. So Paul and love may not seem to be very obvious bedfellows. However, we shall see that this teaching of Paul's in our passage today is connected with what has gone before. As so often is the case in Scripture, chapter 13 follows on immediately after chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 seems to begin a new section in Paul's letter. Chapter 11 has finished with a doxology. The last words of this are, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory for ever. Amen. That section that finished at the end of chapter 11 was about the place of Israel in God's salvation. Paul's argument in most of his writing is that Jews had no special status because no one can be saved without Jesus but everyone can be saved by Jesus. However, in Romans chapters 10 and 11, Paul addresses what will happen to Israel. Having earlier told the Jews not to get too big for their boots, he says the same thing to Gentile Christians. Initially, he uses one of those horticultural metaphors that the Bible rather likes, but which I often find a bit confusing. This one is about the Gentiles being grafted into Israel's root to become new Israel. But this is no reason for Gentiles to get cocky, because if wild branches can be grafted in, how much more easily will the original olive branches take hold? Paul seems to be saying that there is a place for Jews to become part of this new Israel, and he goes on to make this clear. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone 
over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Chapter 12 begins with a therefore, which suggests that what he's going to write is built on what has gone before. And so it is. As Paul writes that the Christians in Rome should not think of themselves more highly than they ought. Jews and Gentiles are in the same need of salvation. But let not the Gentile Christians scoff at the Jews because God's call of Israel will not be withdrawn. It is irrevocable. This is a huge topic and lies behind the attitudes of some Christians towards Israel in our day. With regard to our topic in this podcast, we need only concern ourselves with this being part of a passage in which Paul answers the question of how Christians should live their lives. And the answer is that love must be the foundation. For someone whom I have characterised as brusque and grumpy, the last part of chapter 12 is another section of purple prose that can stand alongside 1 Corinthians 13. We can hear echoes of the teaching of Jesus here in the call to feed one's enemy, although I'm not sure that Jesus ever suggested that one's motivation for doing so is to pour burning coals upon the enemy's head. And so we come to chapter 13 and to our passage. At first sight, the first half of our passage really doesn't seem to fit. There have been suggestions that Romans 13, 1-7 have been slotted into Paul's letter. And it's not unknown that such things might have happened in the New Testament and even in Paul's letters. The correspondence Paul had with the church in Corinth may not be two complete letters that were written one after another. In a sense, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference to us whether or not Romans 13, 1-7 has been slotted in the middle of a passage about love. However, it's interesting how the connection has been made between the passage about respecting authority and the Christian responsibility to love. These first seven verses in Romans 13 have been used very recently to help explain why leaders of evangelical Christian groups in America have continued to support President Trump when his behaviour has at times appeared inconsistent, to say the least, with the Christian gospel. If we take these verses at face value, then no matter what a political leader does or says, it's the duty of the Christian to obey that leader's edicts because they have been appointed by God. It's easy to see where this argument might be flawed. What about Hitler, Stalin or Putin? Were they appointed by God and should Christians therefore not have resisted their rule? Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other members of the dissenting church in Nazi Germany certainly didn't take this passage as binding on the way that they resisted a government that murdered millions of European Jews, gypsies and homosexuals. While we might think that the situation in Rome, with Christians being fed to lions etc., was not so different from Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia or Cambodia under Pol Pot, It's easy to compress history and to imagine that the mid-50s AD were a time when Christians were persecuted. This is not actually the case. Nero was 16 when he became emperor in 54 AD, and for the first few years of his reign, he did little of any significance. While Nero is the emperor often most closely linked in people's minds to the persecution of Christians, This didn't happen until after the fire of Rome, which was in 64 AD. This was ten years after Nero became emperor, and some years after the date it's believed that Paul wrote his letter to Rome. So how then might these Roman Christians have understood this passage when they received it in Paul's letter? 
Firstly, Christian people living in Rome, most of whom were not Roman citizens, would have had no expectation that they had any political power. It was a given that they should submit to the civil authorities, as it was the only feasible option they had. While there had been armed revolts, these had all been suppressed, and they had taken place in Judea and Alexandria, rather than in Rome. To revolt against Roman authority in Rome was hardly a sensible option. However, there may have been some Christians who, having taken on the lordship of Christ, rejected any earthly authority. If that was the case, and the letters to the Corinthians suggest it might have been, Paul is saying here that they should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, while at the same time rendering to God the things that are God's. But Paul actually goes further than say that the authorities should be tolerated. He says that civil authorities have been established by God. Paul sees the civil authorities as the upholders of law and order, and so part of God's providence. It was Jewish tradition to adopt a positive attitude towards the ruling power. This may have been a tactic for self-preservation, but it was also a recognition that without such authority, the world would descend into anarchy. What Paul would have written ten years later, given the situation in the Roman Empire at that time, or indeed what his advice might have been to Bonhoeffer 80 years ago, we can't know. However, Revelation was written at a time when persecution was endemic, and so we can certainly get an idea of one Christian view from that period. One side issue that's worth noting here is the way that our Bible translates some of these verses. One of the problems that Martin Luther experienced was in understanding God's righteousness. He had a strong sense of God's wrath and the fear of the Lord. Luther was a university lecturer in Germany and lectured on Paul's letter to the Romans, and Paul's talk of God's wrath must have influenced him. What is interesting is that on a number of occasions when an English Bible has God's wrath or the wrath of God, the word God isn't there. It's been added by the translator. Now this may be a correct thing to have done, but it allowed one famous scholar on this letter to argue that the wrath of God had been overemphasized. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 is the only place that wrath is attributed to God in the original text. And nowhere does Paul use the verb to be angry with God as its subject. This scholar's argument is that wrath is a consequence of human sin rather than something that God sends to punish people. Now this is relevant in this passage only in so much as it suggests that non-submission to the authorities has inevitable consequences. So don't go crying to God about it. This part of chapter 13 ends with Paul talking about taxes. This sounds a terribly modern argument. Paying taxes is a good thing. Paul's position is not that taxes pay for public services, but rather that politicians deserve to get paid because they work hard. It is a matter, Paul says, of paying your dues, paying what you owe. If it's taxes, then pay taxes. If it's customs revenue, pay that. If you owe respect, then pay respect. And if it's honour, then give honour. What's interesting in the second half of our reading is that love is also counted as a debt, although it's a debt that one must continue to pay because it is always owed. Love is at the centre of Christian obedience. 
It is love that compels us to obey the civil authorities and it's love that compels us to do to others as we would be done by. Paul describes the commandment to love as fulfilling the law. It's not completely clear what this means. It could mean that the commandment to love sums up the rest of the law. It could mean that the commandment to love is what lies behind the law. Or it could mean that love is the ultimate aim of the law. None of these options is totally satisfactory, but the best meaning seems to be that the command to love represents the realisation of the goal of the law. In other words, to love is the ultimate aim of the law. Paul appears to have borrowed from Jesus in this passage when he writes, whatever other commandment there may be is summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Of course, we know Jesus said this, but Jesus was quoting from the Jewish scriptures and bringing two commandments together, love God and love your neighbour. That Paul doesn't mention loving God in this passage suggests that he's not thinking of Jesus' words when he wrote this. When I was reading around this passage, I found these words that seem to sum up what I'd like to say about Paul's thoughts on love. And I'm going to end with this. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says that love is the fulfilling of the law. When we allow God's love to encompass us and then share that love with others, we are able to give even beyond the generosity, care and concern for neighbour that the laws were set up to cultivate. In fact, the call to love is not an escape from our duties to one another. It's a call to live with even more intentionality and attention to the needs of others. We do so not because some rules or laws tell us we have to, but because we have experienced that radical and welcoming love ourselves. And that love compels us to strive to be better. We are not called to be rule followers. We are not asked to love without knowing what it means to be loved. We are not asked to forgive without knowing what it means to be forgiven. We are not asked to live in mystery without being fully known by the God of mystery. We are called to experience and understand the deep love that undergirds and upholds the commandments of God. And by intimately being known and loved by our God, to then extend and share that love with the world.
Let us pray. As we enter the long weeks of Lent and reflect on the sadness of its story, when we look into our own hearts and struggle to live by the responsibilities of our calling, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When we feel lost and alone, when trouble comes to our door and we do not know how to face the future, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When church needs to change, when the way ahead seems threatening and unknown and the usual certainties are gone, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When we are lured by seductive voices of power, money and control and we no longer know what is true, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When our dreams and relationships lie shattered by conflict, circumstance or cruelty and we place our trust in what cannot fulfil us, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When we invest more in developing weapons than we do in the work of peace building, more on what divides us than on the work of unity, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When children are killed in adult wars, when cities are full of marching boots, when there is blood on the ground and the sounds of play are silenced, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When we look at cities that lie deserted, when citizens flee in fear for their lives and our enemies encircle us, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When we take more than we should, when we do not treat the earth with kindness and our habits and choices create a wasteland, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When we find it hard to follow you, when easier pathways beckon and our strength fails, God of life, lead us through the wilderness. When we look ahead and all is dark, send us light. When our hearts are dry, our pathway full of ash and dust, send us water to renew our souls. God of life, lead us through the wilderness. Feed us with the bread and wine that is your body and the love of our companions in the way. May we know your spirit's comfort and trust that your love is enough. In the darkness that surrounds us and the pain that is to come, until we see you face to face. God of life, lead us through the wilderness. Amen.
Before our last song, a final prayer. Go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil. Honour everyone. Go to love and serve the Lord. Amen. Pick them everyone.